This message is brought to you by Cornerstone Gospel Church in Frankston, Australia. 1 Peter. We're looking at this matter of the nature of true Christianity. Um, Of course, the implication from that title, which we haven't discussed at all, is that there is false Christianity. And um, uh, those of you who've been around the church scene at all are aware of that, that there is false Christianity. And even within Christianity, there are teachings that exist um, where, where the Christian church has sound doctrine on, on many fronts, uh, yet there are teachings that exist and practices that exist that um, are unbiblical. Some of you have come out of the heavy shepherding movements and you experience this top-down kind of control of, of churches and you understand that, uh, you know, you, you came to understand that that kind of control by leaders is an unbiblical Control And, you know, one of our endeavours needs to be raising up a plurality of leadership in the church, whereby instead of being a pyramid structure, uh, the church leaders, in fact, are people who are serving the body and lifting the body up. And so, you know, the idea of having a pyramid-shaped uh, governance of the church needs to be flipped around the other way, uh, essentially, where the leadership is lifting people up. So... Part of that process or developing that is that we understand um, the basis of the Christian life. And so just as a quick recap before we read from Peter, we have looked at in this series so far the law, the Old Testament law and the law of love. And in this we have learned that the true Christian life cannot be summarised simply in the words, I've been born again, you know. And, and um, uh, when you go out on the street, you, you talk to people who will, they know that phrase. They, they understand, oh, you're one of those born again believers. And, uh, but the true Christian life is not summarised in a pithy little phrase, I've been born again. It's, it's more than uh, being justified intellectually that we've said some kind of prayer, pray this with me and you'll be saved kind of thing. And so we have an intellectual assent to a collection of doctrines or beliefs. It's more than simply do's and don'ts. If, if the Christian life was a series of do's and don'ts, then we are back under the principle of legalism in that regard. The Christian life is the deeper life. There is something deeper about the Christian life. True Christianity is essentially inward in each believer's life. It's an inward thing. A positive inward reality that lines up with the teachings of scripture and that is inward by virtue of a person having been born again genuinely 
the Holy Spirit residing in that person and thereby taking the word of God in that person's life and transforming the person via the word of God because God's word is living and powerful. We also looked at the centrality of death. The moment we accept Christ as saviour, that we are justified and all guilt is gone. And this is because, scripturally speaking, and especially as we saw in Romans 6, and I'd urge you to go back over Romans 6, we have died with Jesus. And this idea of death is very, very central to scripture. It starts right back in Genesis chapter 3 with the killing of animals in order to clothe Adam and Eve that they might be that their nakedness and their shame might be hidden and it goes all the way through the sacrificial lambs and rams and animals and doves and all kinds of things all the way through until finally the great sacrifice Jesus faith in Christ has us as having died with him at his cross and then we are raised to newness of life and we are to take up our cross daily and follow him we looked at the thought of through death to resurrection you can't be resurrected without having died first that's that's the case isn't it So we're called to follow Jesus by voluntary ascent, by by choice, might be another word. Our obedience, though, is not based on an ability within ourselves to merit something with God, but our obedience to God is based on loving Jesus because of what he's done for us. That he has completed the work for us, so therefore we walk in loving obedience to him because of his love towards us. We also looked at in the Spirit's power that true spirituality is not achieved in our own energy. The how of the Christian life is is taught to us in Romans 6 verse 11 among other passages but it's very clear there likewise you also reckon yourselves or account yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord this verse has been summarized very wisely by someone who made the point that so often Christians get caught up on the do's and don'ts of legalistic thinking and, oh, you, you can't do this and you can't do that as a Christian, all these kinds of things. But the emphasis of this verse is not on the things you can't do, but on the things you should do. Reckon yourselves to be dead unto sin and alive unto God. So in the reckoning of yourself to be being alive unto God is this these steps of thinking about how you can live for the glory of God. And this is the, 
the opposite kind of mindset to that of the legalist. This is the person saved genuinely by faith whose focus is on how can I live to the glory of God? It's the power of the crucified, risen and glorified Christ through the agency of the Holy Spirit at work in your life through faith in him. We looked at the supernatural universe that our relationship with God because God is supernatural to our fallen viewpoint of nature and the world around us God is above all of that super means over and so he's above all of creation all of creation has come through the words of Christ Jesus he spoke it all into creation and Paul declares that nothing was created that was not created by him so because of this And because you and I are brought into relationship with this supernatural being by faith in Jesus Christ, you and I, therefore, have been opened up to begin to know the present life reality of the supernatural, that God can intervene in your life supernaturally. Even salvation is the beginning of that supernatural process in so many ways. It really begins before that with the gospel message. But the Christian life is supernatural in nature. And then we're looking at salvation, past, present and future at the moment. And in this Paul teaches that Christians are called for a purpose So let's look at that purpose which is found in our key text in 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 9 and 10. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvellous light. Amen. Hallelujah. And then he describes what kind of people we are. He says, we once were not a people, but now are the people of God. So we once were not the people of God, but we now are the people of God. Once we had not obtained mercy, but now have. Who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Our Father, we thank you for your word. Lord God, we praise you for its lessons within. And we ask you, Father, that our faith might be strengthened, our spirits stirred, Lord, to walk more closely with you and to live to your glory as Peter declares for us to do. Amen. Hallelujah. So you and I, according to 1 Peter 2 verse 9 are called his own special people that we may proclaim the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his marvellous light. So to the question, did God intend that there should be no evidence of the reality of Christ's victory at the cross 
in the here and now. According to Peter, the, the opposite of that is the case. You and I are called to be in the present day world the evidence of the resurrection life that has come through the cross of Jesus Christ. He states that believers are called in the present life to show forth the praises of God. And that's not just within church that we would sing uh, such grand songs or share testimony or whatever it may be, but that is in the Christian life that you and I would, from within the uh, realm of the lives that we live, share Jesus Christ, that we would show forth the glory of God by the change that God has wrought within us. His intention is that Christians, no matter of what culture, no matter of what nationality, no matter of what intellectual level that we've been born into this world with and, you know, all these kinds of things, no matter what our personality quirks are are or might be, that you and I, it is God's intention that we are to be the evidence to the world around us of the new life. We're that evidence. We can't say to people now, go and, uh, you know, oh, do you want to know about God? Go to Israel and, and you'll find a place called Calvary. It's just a tourist destination now. You know, oh, this is the hill where they believe Jesus was crucified. You know, we're looking back forensically by some amount of evidence as to what that place might be, but we're not called to worship a place. We're not called to worship a statue or an image of any kind. You and I are called to worship God in spirit and in truth, that the truth of the word of God would be the truth that we build the foundation of our faith upon. And out of that, we are to be a demonstration of Christ's victory on the cross. So, what is salvation? Anyone who comes to Christ... We'll just run through these because we've been through them last week just quickly. Anyone who comes to Christ through faith is declared by God to be justified. Now, we're going to talk a little bit more about this in just a moment. But this is courtroom language. The word justification is, is courtroom language. So when we see it in Scripture, we need to understand that it relates to those who are uh, in a position of guilt uh, over crimes committed against uh, God and of God being judge over that person's life. And as a holy and a righteous judge, God somehow comes to declaring that person to be free from all guilt of their sin. Now, the problem with that is that it's not simply that God overlooks sin. This would make God unjust. Because what this would mean is that God is overlooking the sin of one person and not overlooking the sin of another person. And that would make God unjust. 
<coughs> now some people would say no, it wouldn't make God unjust. That is within his sovereign choice to make that kind of choice. So we'll look at that a little more in a moment rather than getting sidetracked. Also, sin was punished in Christ's suffering. This is vital for us to understand because in order for God to declare a person justified, the sin that was committed has to be paid for. It's, it doesn't just go into the ether. It, it doesn't just vanish. There must be a payment for sin. The word justified, a way of simply remembering it, or a simple way of remembering it, is just as if I'd never sinned. Just as if I'd never sinned. When you're justified, that's gone. Uh, you know, when Suzanne and I are raising our children when they were little, um, one of the things we tried to do, and we were not always successful with this, but we tried to do was that when one of our children had done something that merited a punishment or of some kind, whatever it might be, um, that we would punish them uh, in whatever way we deemed appropriate. It wasn't arbitrary, let me just say. We didn't just think up some kind of cruel punishment that we could... Um, inflict upon them we had we had some rules around how we would uh, punish our children for what kind of crimes you know we basically had to think about what we thought were the more serious violations of character and and these kinds of things and how we could teach them to understand right from wrong as as in a process of time but one of the things we did was was we would we would try to punish them and deal with that in that moment without a lingering sense of manipulation afterwards. So we didn't then say to them after we'd punished them for said crime, whatever it may be, uh, we didn't then, you know, over the next couple of days give them the cold shoulder or, or a sense of feeling guilty by saying, but you were naughty two days ago and, and treat them in some kind of manner, you know, there may be a lingering punishment. In other words, they may be, their toys may have been taken off them for a few days. No, we said to you, you're getting your toys back in three days. So don't ask again, you know, this kind of thing. But it wasn't, that wasn't tied, that punishment wasn't tied into any other social interaction with them. We dealt with that crime in and of itself, that that sin, that misbehaviour in and of itself and tried to keep it that way so that so that there was a clear understanding of the activity and the punishment and you know in that way we, we try to keep them uh, you know psychologically stable so um, when Christ dealt with sin he has dealt with that sin in the person of Jesus it's been dealt with in him. This is really important for us to understand because when we come to placing faith in Jesus Christ, our sin has been dealt with in him. Now, we don't merit that. We are, we're not worthy to merit that. 
It's not about personal merit. It's not about that you and I were born into the right religion. It's not about that we have done, you know, salvation classes or confirmation classes or membership classes of some kind and therefore we get to the end and we sign a piece of paper and the people, you know, the choir sings hallelujah to, you know, and and says you're born again. It's none of that kind of thing. Haven't written out a form in triplicate that somehow says we've been born again. It's unmerited. We didn't bring anything to the equation. It's unmerited. It's the work that Jesus did. And salvation by faith. Faith is never described in Scripture as a work. Some will say, what about John John 6? Let's, let's just turn there. I'm getting distracted here. But uh, this, is, this is an important distraction. Because John... Well, it's important. Some would say John 6.29 indicates that faith is a work where Jesus told them, this is the only work God wants from you. Believe in the one he has sent. Let's just look at the surrounding text a little bit. Verse 26. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. You want to be with me because I fed you, not because you understood the miraculous signs. But don't be so concerned about perishable things like food. Spend your energy seeking the eternal life uh, that the Son of Man can give you. For God the Father has given me the seal of his approval. They replied, we want to perform God's works too. What should we do? Jesus replies, this is the only work God wants you to do. Believe in the one he has sent you. You see, this is an argument against the legalism, this idea of legalism or faith being a work. This is an argument against it. This is Jesus saying, it's not about works. It's not about what you can do. All God wants you to do is believe. That's it. It's as simple as that. And so, uh, you know, when we take passages like this and we understand that, that a person's salvation is on the merit of Jesus, not on the merit of individual believers. Jesus took our punishment on the cross. All our punishment. I mean, how far reaching is the blood of Jesus. Paul said, this is a worthy saying, or a noble saying, and one worth acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to forgive sinners, of whom I am chief. You know, this is, that's the, position of understanding we should come to. We should come to a place whereby we see our sins as grievous before God. And you're not remitting your sins. You you know, if you've committed a sin and so then you go to confession and you sit in a confession box and you say, forgive me, Father, for I have sinned. And he says, 
whatever he says, I don't know. I've never been in a confession box. I'm going off what they've done on movies, you know. Tell me your sin. It really worries me that a guy sitting in the box on the other side is listening to people's sins anyway. Um, there's something very creepy about that, um, as has been shown down through history. Very, very creepy about that idea. If you and I want to share our difficulties and our sins with someone, we should do that with a brother or sister face to face. Not so that they can forgive us or give us a recipe of forgiveness, but so that they can pray for us and pray with us and understand and bring some counsel back to us. It's not a formula. We don't go into a box and sit there and say, forgive me, Father, for I've sinned. Tell me your sins, my child. Oh, I did this, that and the other. Go and pray three Hail Marys, light a candle and put some money in the offering. That's that's not how forgiveness comes. That's That's not how forgiveness comes because that is works, not faith. But forgiveness of all your sins is through faith. And what brings about that faith is the gospel message that declares unto us the greatness of Jesus Christ, that he is and has always been God, took upon himself human flesh, came here, died on this earth, physically dead, and resurrected again. Why? Because the power of death over humans is broken only in him because of his sinlessness. Not simply because of who he was, but it was because when he came here, the man, Jesus Christ, and I know he was also God, but God in human flesh, the man, Jesus Christ, lived a sinless life. And it is that fact of sinlessness that meant that death could not overcome him. But he died. That's why in Revelation, as Jesus talks to John there, he says, I am he that lived and died and lives forevermore. So the punishment for our sin was taken by him. Well, we left off last week with this slide here. And, um, and we, we talked about the time frames involved, justification, when we're saved. We are taken by faith. doesn't matter where on the, you know, the road of life we're on, but when we get saved, we are taken by faith to the cross of Christ. The scripture says, and we are crucified, are crucified with him. And one day we will be glorified. We're going to be face to face with God. Hallelujah. But between that salvation and that glorification, we live this road. And, you know, you might be just here. You might be just here. (laughs) You're somewhere on that road. You know? Somewhere between, if you've been born again, who, who hasn't been born again? Takes a bit of bravery, put your hand up. You haven't been born again? If you haven't been born again, you're not on that road. Religion does not get you on that road. A family history of religion doesn't get you on that road. This happens by faith alone in Jesus Christ and by the recognition of our sin that we're born again. That's, that's where the process of sanctification begins. 
that we must be born again. Jesus commanded, I say to you, unless you are born again, you will not even see the kingdom of heaven. He didn't say, you know, I've been to the Philippines a couple of times, and when you talk to people, they say, oh, you're born again, you know? Sorry, they don't really say it like that. I'm really sorry that I did that. Pastor, you're born again, you know? So, um, uh, you know, they, they call you a born again, like it's a noun, you know, like you're a, an Australian or an Indian or an American. You are a born again, you know, a Belgian, a German. You're a born again. No, you either have been born again or have not been born again. It's one or the other. I just prefer to call myself a Christian, a follower of Jesus. So, being justified is one thing. Being glorified is another thing. But being sanctified, this is the ongoing part of your life now, between there and there. This is what God is doing in your life now. This is where you are living now. I'm going to skip through this one. I can put it back up for you later on. In, in fact, turn to Romans chapter 3 and let's read this passage. This is a, a fantastic passage. Romans three twenty one. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed. How did the law reveal righteousness? Because, because Paul is placing a contrast between the legalism of the Old Testament. He's saying, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed. Well, the law did reveal the righteousness of God because it showed how far the separation was from man to God. Because the law showed us our sin. Paul will later say... Is the law sinful? It's not. By the law I came to know sin. So the law shows us our sin, which therefore contrasts us with God because it shows how holy he is. And that's good for us because it makes us grasp for God because we can see our sinfulness and then we can wonder, well, how can I, how can I be made righteous? being witnessed by the law and the prophets. So the law and the prophets pointed to this righteousness that is apart from the law. Verse 22, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation, the one who stands between us and himself. By his blood, through faith, to demonstrate his righteousness, because in the forbearance of God, uh, because in his forbearance, God has passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just, and the justifier. So in 
the death of Jesus Christ, God is just. In punishing sin, God is just. He will punish us in our sin or he punishes his son. It's one one or the other. Both ways, God is just. But in that he punished Jesus, God is just. Sin was punished for us so that we can be justified. The justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So the source of our justification is God's grace in verse 24. The basis of our justification is the cross. And the means of our justification is faith. And I'll I'll put this back up later if you want to get more details off it. There's a lot of detail in that little slide. So let's keep moving along. I made the statement last week, justification is irrevocable. Irrevocable, some would say. Christ took the punishment for all our sin. Not just our sin up to the moment. These these kinds of theologies are difficult theologies because they bring us into areas where we struggle with competing ideas. And one of the competing ideas that is a bit of a struggle in this one, um, and there are some areas that are difficult, is the uh, doctrine of once saved, always saved. And it's often put in contrast with that of losing your salvation. And there are many disagreements over this, and I think primarily the disagreements over this are caused because they're not really doctrines that should be set against each other because they are doctrines that sit heavily within two different theological positions, one being uh, Calvinism and the other not really being Arminianism. Um, you know, but it's often ascribed to being Arminianism. And, uh, you know, I, I love Warren Wearsby's comments on this because, and there's an audio you can find if you look for it on the web. Uh, Warren Wearsby is a wonderful preacher, one of my favourite preachers and teachers, where he is asked, are you a Calvinist or an Arminian or a Calminian? And, uh, and so Wearsby's answer is, I'm none of the above. And I warn you to be very careful of the systems of men, the theological systems of men, because they will always take you outside the boundaries of Scripture for their support. Now, there are people who will listen to this now and, you know, maybe listening. We get people who are listening online and, you know, they might be Calvinist and they'll say, no, that's not true. Um, You know, Calvinism is the gospel. And I've had many of them say this and... Boy, that's a very disturbing thing because there's so much of what Calvin taught which is far outside the gospel, you know. So, but Wearsby went on to say that I do know this. As far as salvation is concerned, from God the Father's viewpoint, I was saved in eternity past when he chose me in Christ Jesus. As far as God the Son is concerned, I was saved when at the cross he declared, it is finished. As far as God the Holy Spirit is concerned, I was saved when humbly I bowed my knee 
to take Jesus as my saviour and he made me a new person in Christ Jesus. And then Wiersbe, in this succinct yet very wise style, says, beyond that, I don't want to speculate. And I know we like to lock things down into neat little packages so that we can sit ourselves in a camp or another camp and these kinds of things, but a theology such as this is much more difficult than that to achieve that. The issue is if we if we ask questions, if we were to say can somebody lose their salvation? If we say no, we can we can say, well, you know, what about if that person becomes a Satanist? Now, there are people who would say then and you know, you you've probably known or read of some Christians who were preaching the gospel and have gone on to be to do some very strange things theologically, you know, and join cults and and uh, become Satanists or express that they've moved from Christianity into witchcraft and you know these kinds of things. And so, when you sit in one camp of theology, you can simply point at that and say, "Well, they were never saved in the beginning." Well, gee, that's a that's a real easy way to get out of the argument. You know, they were never saved in the beginning. But if you think about it from the side of those who believe you can lose your salvation, it's a little bit easier to reconcile that this person has turned from walking in faith in Jesus to go in their own path. You know, nobody took them. What can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus? Nothing. Death doesn't separate us. Height nor depth does not separate us. Nothing can separate us. But in that discussion in Romans 8, Paul doesn't talk of the voluntary choice of mankind there to turn. Right? But it's it's still difficult because when you look at justification, justification is about a theology that puts you and I in right relationship with God on the basis of the work of Jesus and the justification of our lives by the judge of our lives, God the Father, in Christ Jesus. So the whole work is out of our hands. And so, you know, if you say you can lose your salvation, at what point is that? Is it is it when you... Is, is adultery a sin you can lose your salvation for? What about just being angry? Jesus said that if you are angry, you've committed murder within your heart. If you're angry without cause, you know, you've committed that demonstration of hate is a murder within your heart. Is, is that where you lose your salvation? So the, the question becomes a difficult one to ascribe a cut-off line to. So the solution to that is to believe in sinless perfection. You know, that believe that you can maintain your salvation by being sinlessly perfect. Man, you're in for a you're in for a very difficult life if you believe that doctrine. You, you, that's a world of pain. 
to live that way because we're in a process of being sanctified, remember? We're going from justification to glorification. And in glorification, our sin is going to be fully dealt with, all that, you know. Man, you've got some weird thoughts going on in your head. I can't see them, thank goodness. You can't see mine. Thank the Lord. But, because, you know, we're not mind readers. But all of that will be dealt with in the glorification. So, Christ's infinite work on the cross achieved much more than justification alone. The present tense aspect of salvation, because salvation incorporates justification, sanctification, glorification. The present tense aspect is this sanctification. You are now being sanctified. Although justification declares guilt to be gone, God is sanctifying you. There are no degrees of justification. Your sanctification process is not a building of your justification. You know, you're either... You're either going to hell or not. You're either born again or not. It's justification is really a polarized position. You're either in your sin or in Christ Jesus. It's one or the other. Once you're in Christ Jesus, then God is in the process of transforming you through the process of sanctification. Romans 5, 1 through 5. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we also have access by faith into his grace, whereby we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation works patience and patience experience, experience hope, and hope makes not ashamed. Because the love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which was given to us. Romans 1, 16 and 17, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Let's keep moving on. So salvation, that should be brings people back to their original purpose. What is our original purpose? relationship with God to glorify God to love the Lord your God with all your heart soul strength and mind I don't think there's a higher purpose for the Christian life to love the Lord your God I've often said there there are some things you can be selfish about. Well, there's at least one thing, and that is your relationship with God. If you foster your relationship with God, all your other relationships will be blessed righteously out of that. Everything else 
will flow out of that. You can't turn this around. What was the second commandment? Like unto this one? Love your neighbour as yourself. You can't turn them around the other way and say, I'm going to love my neighbour and this will bring me closer to God. It's the other way around. You love God first. The second is like it. You love your neighbour. What is the similarity between these things? The similarity is not about the object at all. The similarity is that it is selfless. To love God and love your neighbour is selfless, not selfish. But if you're not fostering your relationship with God, your relationship with your neighbour is not going to draw you closer to God. This is man's purpose and it has been lost through the fall. Christians stand in a place, therefore through salvation, of true purpose. Now this, this does not answer the question of what is my purpose as a Christian. It does in the simpler sense, to love God with all your heart. Now, what does God want to do through your life is a different question. That's a different thing. Could God take you to Uganda and do work in the orphanages of Uganda or or to southern India and do work amongst the children of prostitutes in places like Mumbai? You know, just terrible circumstances and situations that children are growing up in those places or among the brick factories in northern India could God take you there to work amongst those children and bring the gospel to them who knows that's what God can do through you but what is your primary purpose your primary purpose is not the liberation of children Your primary purpose is to love the Lord your God. Out of that love for God, let your love flow to your fellow man. And where that takes you is where God will take you. In salvation, God the Father, the first person of the triune Godhead, becomes the believer's father. John 1 verse 12, as as John described Jesus coming to earth, the word of God made flesh. He spoke of those who believed in John 1 verse 12, but as many as received him, to them gave he power. And the word means right or authority. To become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. To become the sons of God. I mean, seriously, if if you're fatherless, and there's many of us here who are fatherless, and some have been fatherless at difficult stages of life. God is the father you really need. He is the biblical father you need to call upon. All who receive Jesus on the basis of his finished work become 
the sons of God or children of God. If we, you know, let's be inclusive. Let's be progressive. We'll be really progressive. Children of God. Also, in salvation, each believer is united with Christ, the second person of the triune Godhead. In Romans 7 verse 4, we're told that Christ is our bridegroom and we're the bride. In John 15, we're told that Christ is the vine and we're the branches. In Ephesians, we're told over and over that we are in Christ Jesus through faith. So we're united with him. And this is what Paul says was a mystery in the Old Testament, that at the revelation of Christ, we could be united with him. He says that was a mystery, it's not now. This is something that is known to us. And this is not, you know, the baby Jesus. This is the man who hung on a cross for us, died rose, ascended, and is glorified. Hallelujah. Finally, the Bible also tells us that in salvation, each believer is indwelled by the Holy Spirit, the third person of the triune Godhead. You know, people get into so many debates over ridiculous things. They say, oh, you believe in the Trinity. That's not a word from the Bible. You know? Well, yeah, all right. There are other words that are not words from the Bible. Transubstantiation. Well, that's a false doctrine. The uh, study of salvation is under the term soteriology. That's not a word from the Bible. So, you know, words that don't come from the Bible can still have very profound meanings. But the plurality of the Godhead is something that is very clearly and early taught in Scripture. And the thing is that plurality means more than one, which the this biblical description of the Godhead is a plural description, even down to the name of God, Elohim, with the plural ending on the end of the word of im. That is a plural ending of a word, like we might put S on the end of words that takes it from being uh, a single to a plural in many cases. You can have a car or two cars. But never does the biblical image of God, although it gives a plural description of God, never does it give more than three persons in a description of God. John 14 16 to 18 says, And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he might abide with you forever. The Spirit of truth. whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. God, please, beloved, don't call the Holy Spirit it. You know, he is he the third person of the triune Godhead. It came into my life. No, because you see, the the problem with this is that it fits in with some of this modern theology on the power of God. 
The Holy Spirit is the power of God. The Holy Spirit brings the power of God into your life, but the Holy Spirit is the third person of the triune Godhead. And He is not it. The Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees Him nor knows Him, but you know Him, for He dwells with you and will be in you. Here He is likening the Father to the Spirit. He dwells with you, Who was with them? Jesus, the second person of the Godhead, and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. Hang on, he said the Holy Spirit will come to you. Now he's saying he will come to them because he is coming to them in the third person of the Godhead. I tell you, um, one, one person said... Um, if you try to explain the the Trinity, um, uh, trying to explain trying to explain the Trinity is is. If you try to explain the Trinity, you'll lose your mind. You'll lose your mind. Explain the way you lose yourself. Yes, it's it's not a simple doctrine, you know, and. But it is an important doctrine. Romans 8 verse 9, But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, Spirit of Messiah, Paul uses the word. So he has interchanged the Spirit of God and the Spirit of Messiah as being the same word. Because here is the same... uh, a portioning if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you now if you don't have the spirit of Messiah you're not his what a beautiful revelation for us in 1 Corinthians 3 verse 16 know ye not that you are the temple of God and that the spirit of God dwells in you John 14 Verse 16 says, And I will pray the Father, he will give you another helper that he might abide with you. Uh, We've just mentioned that. Down through verse 23, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. The believer is indwelled by the Holy Spirit upon faith in Jesus. The Holy Spirit is not given by church confession, by signing of a creed, you know, all these kinds of things. not given by impartation in uh, some Pentecostal circles and, you know, people who believe, who teach that you must be, you must say a prayer of faith, be water baptized and be holy, you know, filled with the Holy Spirit in order to be saved. You know, that's not correct. You're Faith in Jesus Christ is what saves you. From there, you're in a process of sanctification and growing in Jesus. If we add anything else to that, we take away from the foundation of faith in Christ for salvation. So salvation is all one piece. Salvation incorporates all of this. God has justified us by faith in Christ Jesus. He is sanctifying us. This is the way to discipleship. This is ongoing faith with confession of sin, confessing Christ as Lord, 
and obedience in the in the Christian life. This is all demonstrated in sanctification, on the way to glorification. For some people, that happens sooner. There have been many people who have gotten saved on their deathbed and have gone to be with Jesus. Instant glorification. Wouldn't that be nice? To be with him. There's, you know, this world has gone so insane that sometimes, sometimes I think, God, why are you keeping us here? It's, it's the wrong question. God, it's while you're keeping us here, make me useful. Because I don't know why you're doing it, but make me useful. So being glorified, that's the conclusion of things. If we could achieve sinless perfection somewhere in here, why would we need glorification? Praise the Lord. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvellous light. That's what you're here for. So don't be getting on Facebook and, oh, the world's gone nuts. I'll share this latest example. It's gone nuts. Good for you if you want to share it. You know, that's good. But it's gone nuts. So, Lord, make me useful. Help me to share your gospel. Help me to see another person get saved. Use me in this life. Amen. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Is that all clear? Thumbs up. Praise God. Praise God. Hallelujah. Now, Father, we thank you and we praise you here this morning, Lord God. What a joy for us to be able to fellowship together. What a joy for us to be able to think these thoughts for a few moments on what you have done for us in Christ Jesus. Oh Lord, we were so we are so undeserving of your love. Yet by faith in your Son you have transplanted us out of darkness into light. You've taken us out of sin and placed us in Christ so that as you look upon him you see his sinlessness and we are hidden in him justified saved washed clean by his blood that you might be just and the justifier of all who call upon your name so we praise you Lord and for anyone here that has not been born again this morning Lord we pray Let this trigger an earnest inquiry in that one's heart, Lord God, that they would earnestly seek you, that they would earnestly see themselves as a sinner, not deserving of your grace, and see that Jesus has taken their sin to the cross, help them to call out upon him to place faith in him and be saved. For you love them 
Lord, with such a love that you would give your Son. We praise you in the mighty name of Christ Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message. You're welcome to duplicate this message in its entirety for non-profit purposes. For more information and resources, visit cgc.org.au.